Do we think we can really read God's providence and put all things together that led to this particular moment? Well, our text this morning helps us a little bit, at least, in discerning the answer to this question. I want us to see first a clueless king. This is obviously a long text. We're not going to cover every detail, but we are going to take the bird's eye view and hopefully get to at least uh, one of the main points therein. But a clueless thing. One clear thing about this particular story in the Bible is that it is odd. Uh, I don't think many of you uh, saw a flannel graph on this when you were young or probably have it saved as your favorite Bible story of all time. Uh, But I do want us to see the big themes that are being shown through it and at least acknowledge that today we meet the first king of Israel. Uh, And at least in our meeting of him, he seems to have off the bat a lot of upside. I mean, he comes from a good family. His his, uh, father is a wealthy man. They're a people of some prominence and prestige. Uh, You know, even the strange story about these lost donkeys... Uh, as weird as it is, shows us at, uh, at one level the wealth of this father. Uh, you know, donkeys may not mean, mean much to us. I actually had some screaming in my backyard this morning. Our neighbor has a few. Uh, they don't mean anything good to me, I will tell you that. Uh, but back then, it was a measure uh, of wealth. I mean, they didn't have, you know, savings accounts and 401ks. They had property and they had livestock. And especially this sort of livestock was also working livestock. I mean, it would be like saying, you know, you woke up in the morning and three John Deere tractors had gone missing, you know, so what do you do about it? Well, he calls his son and says, I need you to go look, you know, for these donkeys because they're of some import to our wealth. Uh, Even Saul, by the end of the story, uh, we we see becomes somewhat of a a proverb. We didn't read that part, Uh, but he prophesies towards the middle of chapter 10 and people say, you know... What happened to the son of Kish? Uh, how is it that Saul is also among the prophets? And all that to say, Kish is of such wealth and such prominence that the whole region knows his name and they know the name of his son, so much so that when his son does something out of character, it can become a proverb for the whole community to use in just their normal day-to-day speech. It becomes an idiom. And so this is a family of some import, at least by the telling. But he's not just, of course, from a powerful family. He clearly has some sort of powerful presence. Uh, You'll notice he's a notably handsome man. Uh, In fact, he was the best-looking guy in all of Israel. Every year when the stats came out, sexiest man alive in Israel, he was at the top of the list. I mean, that's what the text says, the most handsome man in all of Israel. But not only handsome, he was tall and handsome. And I mean, I dislike the guy already, and I don't think... That's what's supposed to be happening, but uh, you'll notice the language, head and shoulders above anyone else. He was the giant of Israel, and we'll learn more, of course, about giants in time to come. So he's physically imposing in his stature. He's physically attractive in his looks. I mean, it's just what people would want if they were looking for a king. (laughs) And that's what Samuel eventually says, are you not the desire of Israel? You're just what they're looking for. This isn't something that's lost on us. I mean, in our day and age, you can read the statistics. The articles come out almost on a weekly basis, but studies show pretty consistently that attractive people are often more successful, get paid more money, are promoted easier, and tend to get on better uh, better, uh, in their professional life. 
And not only that, we also learn in the same sort of studies that women, hands down, prefer tall men. Uh, and that's hard for average people like myself to think about. Uh, you know, not only do women have a strong preference for tall men, but men tend to look at tall men as automatically more dominant. It's just the way things are. And this guy has it all. I mean, he's from money. He's handsome. He's tall. I mean, if you're looking for a king to represent the nation, he seems like a pretty fitting candidate. And they've asked for a king. And the king that God seems to have prepared for them seems like a good catch for any nation. But of course, before we get too excited, uh, a few things do catch your attention as you're reading the text, or at least hopefully they did, if you didn't uh, check out real early. Uh, Saul does not seem to be the sharpest, most spiritually minded guy in all of Israel. Uh, you know, what's interesting, scripturally, we don't often get physical descriptions of people, but we get several physical descriptions of Saul. But we do often get spiritual descriptions of people, and we get no spiritual descriptions of Saul. We just learn that the guy's really tall and really good looking, and his dad's got a lot of money. But he seems to be spiritually somewhat clueless. And not just spiritually clueless, a little bit, you know, uh, slow on the uptake altogether. Uh, we do see him in this text sort of stumbling around. You know, the donkeys are lost. Day go by, another day goes, another day go by, goes by, and then a third day goes by, and still our hero, at least our presumable hero on his quest, is totally empty-handed. He can't find his donkey with both hands, as the saying goes. Uh, he will see David's ability. Uh, we will see David's ability with sheep later on as part of his qualification. Uh, but this man cannot find the livestock of his family. And then what, what's strange is that the, you know, the, all of this looking leads them to the town of Zuf, which just so happens to be Samuel's hometown. And this means nothing to Saul. He has no clue where they are or who happens to live there. And even his servant says, you know, I hear there's a man of God around here, and everything he says comes to pass. Even his servant is more in tune to the prophet of Israel, the judge of Israel at the time, than, than Saul is. And Samuel's reputation precedes him. We've learned this over and over in the book of Samuel. We learned that he judged from north to south and all over, and everything he said came to pass, and his reputation had grown throughout the nation, and Saul is so kind of thick-headed, he's never heard of him at all, doesn't even know his name. In fact, when he finally runs into Samuel face to face, he approaches him and says, hey, do you know where the seer lives? Even then, he can't clue in that this might be the guy that they're looking for. And when he does finally do something spiritual in chapter 10, when he joins with the prophets and he prophesies with them because the Spirit rushes upon Saul, it's so out of character that it becomes a proverb that everyone uses. They say, is Saul among the prophets too? We've known Saul a long time. We know his family. This is not what Saul's like. So they would use it when anything, something so out of the ordinary happened, that would be their saying. So when we say something, you know, is impossible, we say, you know, when pigs fly. 
Uh, when they would say, this is very improbable, they'd say, is Saul among the prophets? And so even by reputation, he's not considered a spiritual man. And so in that regard, as a reader, we're thinking, okay, we know he's going to become king. He has all the physical attributes of a king, but he seems to have some pretty glaring weaknesses as well if God doesn't do something to change them. And even after being given instructions by Samuel that we didn't read, my apologies, he's told three events are going to happen. I'm going to tell you three things that are about to transpire, and the last of them we get to see in great detail, this prophesying episode. Uh, And that text ends, interestingly enough, not with a bang, but with a whimper. We have Saul chosen by God because he's going to fight against the Philistines for his people. And in chapter 10, we see the Philistines, and they set up a garrison, and uh, Samuel tells them, look, these three things are going to come to pass, and when they come to pass, the Lord's going to come upon you. And once that happens, whatever your hand sees to do, do it. And what he sees is the Philistines gathering together, and the text ends with, and Saul went to his own home. He just doesn't do anything. It just kind of fades out. That This is our, our big hero that we've been waiting for, and he hasn't done anything uh, to defeat the Philistines. He doesn't seem to know what's going on. In fact, when his uncle approaches him and says, uh, so like, tell me what happened on your trip. Now, this man's just been told by the prophet that he's going to be the king of Israel, and this is what he translates to his uncle. The donkeys were found. That's the whole conversation. He's presented literarily as, you know, uh, what we see in our movie and TV tropes as as the brainless beauty, you know. He is uh, the Ken of the Barbie movie. Um, I've never seen it, but Dave said he loved it. Um, You know, if you're a cartoon person, this is Johnny Bravo. If you're a sitcom person, you know, this is Joey from Friends. He can't find the donkeys, and he doesn't seen to be in tune spiritually, and even when, he's, uh, uh, when revealed who he's going to be, that he's God's man, he seems kind of out of it. And so we get left with this sort of weird, okay, strong, powerful, good-looking man who God has chosen to be king, this is God's man, and then nothing really comes of it, at least not yet. And so we have this clueless king, but we also have, you'll notice in this text, this controlling king. While Saul seems a bit daft, we see behind the text there is one being who has total control. I mean, Saul isn't looking to be king. In fact, he's unsuccessfully looking for donkeys. He can't even find those. But God has set it all in motion and controls the whole thing down to the most minute details to bring all of this to pass. I mean, the lost donkeys donkeys seem to just haplessly uh, be wandering, and Saul's going from this city to that city, and he just happens to end up in Zuf. And that just happens to be a city where the servant knows that there happens to be a man of God who lives there that they don't know by name. But they don't know how to speak to him because they don't have any money. And Saul says, I'm not sure what we're going to do. I mean, we're out of food, we're out of time, we're out of resources. And the servant says, I just so happen to have a shekel of silver here in my pocket. We could pay him with that. 
And so then they go and find some women who happen to be drawing water at the well the moment they're uh, approaching. Interesting uh, uh, allusion there. Uh, and they say, hey, uh, we heard that there might be a seer here in this town, a prophet. And they say, yeah, oh my goodness, yeah, you just missed him. He just came out of his house. He's about to go sacrifice. I mean, lo and behold, what a coincidence. It's a lucky day for you. If you just march on ahead, you'll run right into him because everyone's going to wait to eat until the sacrifice is given. Then they enter the city, and behold, just some random guy at the gate is there, and Saul says, hey, do you know where the seer lives? And luckily, it's the seer himself, Samuel. And today, he says, we will eat together, for I have a few things I'd like to share with you. And the author informs us very clearly what's going on behind the text. What seemed like this haphazard journey looking for lost donkeys, he says, oh, by the way, the day before God came to Samuel, uncovered his ear is exactly what it says, and told him, tomorrow you're going to meet a man from Benjamin who's going to be king over Israel. Showing us that God has been directing every part of this story so that it would happen just like it's happened, so that Israel's king would be presented. He's the only one moving in the passage. I mean, Saul is there, tall, dark, and clueless, totally passive. But there is God, this all-controlling king, moving everything in the story to come to this particular moment. Well, if that's the controlling king, I want us to see also, somewhat oddly, the compassionate king. I mean, you'll notice God is controlling the whole story, and this is the king, God, that last chapter the people just said, we don't want you anymore. Give us a king like the other nations. And then we meet this king, who's like the kings of the other nations, and we are hardly impressed, at least not yet. And if you're reading the story in sequence, you would have to ask yourself, why is God moving all of this story in this particular direction? We learned last week when they rejected God, God said, there's going to be some consequences for this rejection of me. I'm going to give you the king that you want, and here's all that's going to happen because of it. And while we meet this king who meets all the requirements, he's just what the people are looking for. He is the desire of Israel. He's just like a king from every other nation. At the same time, we see God moving the whole world to get us this to this moment, to give them the king that they requested. Now, what would you think happens next? They reject God and say, give us a king. He says, you don't want that. I'm warning you. And then in this chapter, we see the king being led directly to them. And you'd think, well, this has to be where God finally gives them their comeuppance. They've asked for it, and this is what they get. This is the moment where they get what they deserve. We meet this guy. And the reason that we often think that is what we addressed in the opening. I mean, we think that's how God works, right? 
If we mistreat Him, He will give us what, he, what we deserve. If we're fickle with Him, He'll be fickle with us. I mean, He does have to teach us lessons, right? But is that what is happening? I mean, we know the rest of the story. We know that Saul is not ideal. But Saul does have a mission that we see explained to us in verse 16 of this text. It says, anoint this particular man, and you shall anoint him, notice verse 16, to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. Why? Because I have seen my people, and their cry has come to me. I mean, four times in verses 16 and 17, God looks at the Israel who rejected him and said, not you, a different king. And he says, my people, my people, my people. And he says, their cry came to my ear. And so I I answered them. My eyes were open to them. That's the exact language of Exodus chapter 3, that he heard the cries of his people and he saw the oppression of Egypt. And here he says, I've seen my people and I've heard their cry, and so I'm going to give them a king in order to deliver them from their oppressors. I mean, that's not what we're expecting, at least from chapter 8. We're expecting God to give them a punishment for their hard-hearted and foolish requests. And instead, they get, at least at the beginning here, a deliverer. Against the backdrop of chapter 8, this really is wild, but God says, they cry to me and I answer them because they are my people and that is who I am. I mean, the king they want at God's expense is the king that God will use to deliver them from the Philistines. I mean, that is the mercy of God on display. Do you believe that? Or do you believe that God is only faithful when you've been faithful prior to? Or that God only moves towards you once you show that you really mean it this time? Then God will act for you. Would God ever move towards us if that was the case? But God isn't like us. And it's one of the things that Scripture tells us time and time again. In fact, it's how He describes Himself when He reveals His very character. He talks about this reality that He is covenantally faithful, or He has steadfast love, He has hesed to a thousand generations. It's just who I am. I stay steady in my love commitment to those who are mine. I mean, God's preoccupation with His children never ceases, the prophet tells us. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every single morning, no matter what God's people did the night before. And unheard of. Even on the morning after his people told him, we don't want you anymore. Give us a king like the other nations. And do you believe that? Or does that not sound like the God that you know? I mean, listen to how David describes him. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Why is he good? Because his steadfast love endures forever. And then listen to why he says that. 
Psalm 107, the whole thing hangs on this refrain, His steadfast love endures forever. And what does he mean by that? Listen, some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, because they had rebelled against the words of God and they spurned the counsel of the Most High, and they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and then He delivered them in all of their distress, for His steadfast love endures forever. Some were fools through their sinful ways. And because of their iniquities, they suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food. They drew near to the gates of death. But they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And He delivered them from all of their distress. Yes, Israel was rebellious. And yes, they told Him right to His face that they'd prefer someone else. Yes, they told Him they could live without Him. But they cried. And God comes running. And though Saul will not be ideal, he will be ideal to deliver them from the oppression of the Philistines when they need it. Because God's eyes were open to their need and he heard the cries of his people. I mean, how can that not be of comfort to us? Especially when we consider that he sent us a king. And if you think the rejection of God's people of Him in chapter 8 is bad, I mean, what happens when God puts on human flesh and comes to His own? And notice, He sends Him to us while we were still weak. Christ comes and gives Himself for the ungodly, not for the godly ones, not for the ones who prepared themselves. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Well, if, if while we were enemies, God shows us this kind of mercy, Paul says, how much more now that He sent His Son in our place? Because when we were not even looking for God, God sent another king to this world. He was not tall and dark and handsome. He might have been dark, but we didn't like Him at all. He had no form or majesty to attract us to Him. There was no beauty in Him there was nothing about his personal presence that drew anyone to find him lovely. He wasn't successful in the way that we wanted. He didn't command a crowd in the way that we would have desired it. And every time he did command a crowd, he would ruin the whole thing by saying things like, eat my flesh and drink my blood or you have no part in me. When we saw him, we didn't like him. And even more repulsive than the life he lived as a poor man without status or beauty was the ugly death that he died that told us for certain that if it was up to us, we would take a hard pass on this kind of king. I mean, what kind of kings get crucified? What sort of winning looks like that? But even our rejection of him there didn't stop him. He pursued his people in his steadfast love, even unto death on a cross. And being raised, he is now King of kings and Lord of lords. And this king is both competent and compassionate because he's the God of this text, the God who searches out his people when they cry and moves all of history for the sake of their salvation.
Because the steadfast love of this king never ceases. His mercies never, ever, ever come to an end. They are new every single morning. This morning. And dear sinner, child of God, he comes to you and beckons you home to a king like this. A king who is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And even though you didn't give it, and even though you haven't lived it, he comes to you today in his compassion and steadfast love and calls you home. May you put your trust fresh in him this morning. Let's pray.